You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Welcome. I'm Warren O'Deschalette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues in a unique spiritual perspective based on the principles of the Baha'i Faith. For information on the Baha'i Faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I recorded a conversation with Martha Martinez a Baha'i currently living in South Hadley and is a student at Springfield Technical Community College. I started our conversation by asking Martha where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, I was born in Mexico and um, moved to Texas when um, with my family when I was about five years old. And um, so I really grew up in Texas for the most part of um, my elementary school. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would go back to Mexico for months at a time in the summer or whenever we'd get the chance. And, um, we, we grew up Catholic. Um, and my parents were Catholic when they were in Mexico and then they wanted to continue with Catholicism when they moved to Texas, but realized that there wasn't a Spanish speaking Catholic church nearby. So uh, by necessity, they went to a Baptist church that was Spanish-speaking. So we became Baptist, the first Mexican Baptist church of um, Taylor, Texas. Mm. And uh, it was about 45-minute drive every Sunday. And we were really, we really loved the the Baptist church and we loved the community. And it was a bunch of... um, a bunch of uh, families attending the church, and there, and those young couples, young couples with um, their kids, and we all were about the same age, and that was the makeup of this Baptist church. And I think that's why it worked so well with my parents. Mm-hmm. Is that we had, it was just young couples, young families, just starting out with their families and struggling financially mm-hmm. and struggling with the. The cultural environment that they were in and so they had a lot in common they had a lot of support within each other and that's what kind of kept us going to this church mm-hmm. for so many years um and so we grew up really devout christian mm-hmm. and uh i i mean i remember th- seeing my life as just christian you know mm-hmm. i wanted to become a reverend at one point or a pastor at one point, um, when I was younger, and uh, and our life, our community life, was the the Baptist church. Mm. We would go on picnics together. We'd go to the parks together. We'd have slumber parties. And my sisters and I were really involved in Girls in Action, which is training for missionary work mm-hmm. <laughs> in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would hear stories from missionaries, and then we'd bake cookies and send them to them. Mm. Um, so we, you know. Now, were you this act? Oh, Chris, you were much younger before. But were your parents that active in their church in Mexico? Or was it something about the church in Texas that sort of got this thing going? It was a church in Texas. In Mexico, You, they just went to the Catholic church just to go. And I think it was fear that kept them going back to church and Fear and, and tradition and just the cultural expectation that this is what you do every Sunday. But there wasn't a real community to belong to. Um, it just wasn't logistical unless you were wanting to be, you know, in working within the, the, the church. You were a part of that. That was almost like elite community. Um but other than that, it's just the community was so large and people just go to any Catholic church. They don't necessarily belong to a particular one um, or they go to the community one. But it's it's just different. There wasn't mm. that kind of a 
of a community and you go back to your families and your family is your community. Mm. You're cause it's big families there. So when they came to Texas, they needed that kind of family that they didn't have, that they left in Mexico. So the Baptist church became that family of support. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it became our community. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, you know, we were very comfortable. Um, I think at one point, and this is when um, my sister and I were um, 11, we were just entering middle school, I believe, um, that my father was becoming restless mm. within the, the Baptist church because there was a lot of gossip and jealousy and um, just a lot of things weren't making sense to him. And he, uh, And at that time when he was asking all these questions and he had these doubts, um, the Jehovah's Witness were coming to visit us. The Mormons were coming to visit us. And um, there was this, uh, you know, desert storm was happening. And so there was all these things about Saddam Hussein. And Islam was getting a really bad uh, name. Like it was, there's a lot of misunderstanding about um, the Islamic religion in the Muslim world. And mm. so he had a lot of questions about it. I mean, this was the first time he heard of another religion outside of Christianity. It's the first time I heard of another religion. Um, I always thought religion was Christianity <laughs> and all of the, you know, the different churches within it. Um, but I had no clue that there was something else. So, so I think all of these, these elements kind of, had my dad questioning um, religion and and God and just questioning why is he now suddenly realizing that there's a lot of religions out there and mm. why are they so disunified? And if they all believe in God, why is there so much, you know, hatred among the religions and resentment? Mm. So, um, so every... Tuesday, we'd have the Jehovah's Witness come, and every Thursday, the Mormons would come, and we would. So it was like, constant. and you would, and you would participate. Uh, the whole family participate. We did everything as a family. We had no excuse. I think it's partly because we had one car, <laughs> and um, so if someone wants to go somewhere, everyone has to go. Otherwise, you're stuck. Um, and uh, and we had each other, you know. So we just we did everything together. So. And this was it, um, exploring these religions we did as a family. And, um, and so it's like we were going to Sunday school every, every other day, it felt like. <laughs> and um, I, was, I, I liked it. I thought it was interesting getting different perspectives. Um, but I liked it for the reasons that I was thinking, oh, I know who to save now. <laughs> you know, like um, I'm, getting, I'm getting the dirt so I can know how to save them. And uh, my mother and father were really like almost searching and shopping for a religion um, because it was just that our Baptist church started falling apart um, because of all the gossip that was going on. Um, and then uh, at work, my dad uh, met, well, there's, there, there's a, a small Persian population in his job and his um, company mm. that he was working. Um, and he assumed that they were all Muslim. And because of what he was hearing on the news about the war in Iraq, desert storm and, and the Islamic community and fanatics, you know, he had a really negative idea about them. And he would come to work with his Bible in hand and try to save these, uh, this, you know, uh, women who were Persian <laughs> from from the Islamic faith. And um, he never asked them what religion they were at all. He just made these assumptions that just because they were, you know, they looked Arab, <laughs> they were from that part of the world, they must be Muslim and they must be really, you know, um, needing to be saved and lost mm. souls. So, but every time he would come with the Bible and argue he realized he couldn't argue with them because they wouldn't allow him. Like they just accepted everything he would say, and then they would teach him more things about the Bible. And 
my fa- my father was just like taken aback. He didn't know how to react because <laughs> he was waiting for some kind of defensive attitude that he can then fire back at. And it's like he described it as like getting ready to pick up this heavy stone that when you pick it up, you realize it's light as a feather, and then it like you fall backwards. And that's how that's how he described the the feeling he got when he was speaking to the, um, these two women in particular. Mm. And then. At one point, one of them uh, decided to invite my father to a Baha'i fireside, a Baha'i meeting, um, to learn about the Baha'i faith more. And my father was like, Baha'i what? <laughs> well, you know, but he he decided he, was, he wanted to check it out. And they, um, they invited him to a Baha'i meeting in Pflugerville, Texas, with this really wonderful family that is bilingual and speaks Spanish and English and my father went and he really liked it a lot I think what he liked the most about it was the environment mm. it was really open and very like you've had this feeling of generosity mm. and acceptance um, and while the rest of us were continuing on with our Jehovah's Witness and Mormon and Sunday school uh, regime, regime <laughs> uh, my father on the Saturdays would be going to these um, high meetings by himself. By himself for a couple of months. And then he slowly took my mom. He took her uh, about two months later and she loved it. Um, and then he took my younger sister. And then he took my twin sister, and then he took me and my brother in the end. And um, now, why was it in that order? <laughs> because, because I was really uh, <laughs> gung ho Christian. Gung ho Christian. I think more so than the rest of my sisters, and um, very defensive. Like I had these plans of becoming a missionary, mm. and if and if I wasn't a missionary, I'd become a, a pastor, and. Um, and this is what this is my choice in life. And I had really powerful experiences with God when I was younger through prayer, you know, which they might have been coincidences now that I think about it. But like, mm. you know, there was this one time uh, I was really nervous about my mom getting hurt when she was out shopping. So I was praying and praying, God, I'll read the Bible front and back. I'll save all the non-Christians if my mom could just come home in two seconds and she came home in two seconds. And so I thought, oh, my God, God, listen to me. I must be, you know, I'm, I have to repay him. So, you know, now that I think about it, it's, it's so silly. But and it was more than more of a coincidence, mm. probably. Um, but it was it was a powerful thing for me. You know, I was um, six years old when I um, had when I first realized the power of prayer. <laughs> so I always felt indebted to God for some reason, you know, because of that. And um, so it was my mission, you know, mm. to to serve Jesus, to serve God in some way and repay him for mm. answering my prayer. You know, it's unusual to see someone that young have such spiritual fervor. Yeah, I don't... I think it was... I, don't, I think it was out of hardship... That, um, you know, I mean, my mom always told us, say your prayers, say your prayers. And, um, and she would say, Papa Diosito is looking after you, you know. Um, and so it just was kind of, <laughs> we grew up with it. So we we knew that if there was something wrong, you cling to God. Mm. Um, and then you do something, you know. Um, so it, So that I had... That to me was a really powerful experience, however simple it was. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was really kind of on the conservative end and was really upset that my father was letting things get out of control with these other religions. and um, Including the Mormon and the Jehovah's Witness? Including the Mormon and Jehovah's Witness. And I think because I noticed some things during our meetings that whenever the Jehovah's Witness would come, my family would be separated from, you know, according to gender. The women, there's four of us, so there's three girls and my mom, would be taken to my younger sister's room, which is really small. And the men, including my brother, who was three years old, 
would stay in the living room and talk about, you know, the important spiritual issues that the women don't really quite understand. And we would go to the back of the room and we'd talk about female uh, heroes from the Bible and, you know, um, how we should be obedient and good wives and, you know, all of these things. And that happened with the Jehovah's Witness. And it also happened with the Mormons too. You know, they would split us up where they would always defer to the, to the man of the house. And it really frustrated me because I wanted to, I felt like a spiritual leader and I wanted to be a part of that conversation. And I felt like really left out and marginalized. And, um, so it made me more stubborn in wanting to become a pastor because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I wanted to change things. I saw that there is that the Christian faith, our Baptist church needed a little bit of updating. So I wanted to bring that update mm. when I would become a, you know, a pastor. Mm-hmm. And so my father knew this. And so he didn't, he, he didn't. He saved in, you for last. <laughs> yeah, he saved me for last. And I knew he was sneaking behind my back. And he was taking these people to my my family to um, see these people because my younger sister would say Baha'i, Baha'u'llah, and it would freak me out. And she would do it on purpose to get me really scared. And I'm like, what is dad taking you to? And she's like, I can't tell you. It's a secret, which made me even more nervous and scared. And finally, I confronted my dad and I said, dad, what are you doing? (laughs) And how old were you at this time? I was 10 years old. Oh, my gosh. Um, I was just about to turn 11 and I went up to my dad. It's like, dad, what are you doing? You're backsliding. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, you're doing something. It's heresy. It's not good. We're, you know, we're Christian. And I'm really scared that you're exposing the family to something that's not healthy. And he said, no, no, it's, it's a good, they're good people. You should come and visit them before you, before you, you become scared or say anything. And I, you know, I refused for a couple of weeks to go. I didn't, I really didn't want to have anything to do with the Baha'i faith. And, um, I became more, uh, adamant about going to church and making my mom go to women's Bible study on Wednesdays. And, um, and so finally I decided I really, because my sisters were loving it and they kept asking to go back Mm. to visit the Baha'is. And I, no, they were still going to the church. Yeah, we were still going to the Baptist church, um, and I think it was more so because I really wanted them to go. Um, I think my father, at this point, was just fed up with the disunity that was going on, and he really didn't want to go anymore. But because it was so important to me, he would still make that forty-five minute drive. So finally. Um, as I saw my sister's enthusiasm for the Baha'i faith grow, I decided that things got really out of control and I needed to visit this Baha'i community and see for myself what my dad was exposing my family to mm. <laughs> so that I can write a proposal to the pastor. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And um, so I went, oh, but before I went to the, uh, this was a Saturday night. And at this time, I don't know if people remember, but the X-Files was a really huge show every Friday at 8 p.m. <laughs> and my, my sister and I had a tradition with my best friend to watch the X-Files. And this episode happened to have been about cults. And um, I thought it was a sign of God. <laughs> he was trying to warn me about the Baha'i faith. And so in this episode, I remember it so well because it really frightened me. Um, it was about a cult of, um, of Satan worshipers and the the head leaders of this cult had a red house with a red garage and they would have a fire in the middle, you know, of their yard and it was just really scary to me and I saw this and I was like, oh my God, this is a sign of God. <laughs> He's preparing me for what's going to happen tomorrow with the Baha'is. So... So finally, it was time to go to the fireside Saturday at uh, at 7 o'clock is when it started. And um, my father and I just went by ourselves. Hmm. And he said... Now, what was the reasoning behind that? So that... 
so that I wouldn't feel pressured by the rest of the family to like it, I think. And I think he really wanted us all to have a personal experience with the religion mm -hmm. so we could all then make a decision as a family without being in pressured. And because he knew it was just so important to me to, to kind of protect my family and, and then see for myself. So, um, so we went just, you know, my father and I just went and, um, I, it was that same experience where I thought I was going to pick up this heavy rock and it was light as a feather and I fell back because I realized, you know, right before we got into the door of this Baha'i home, um, I saw the house and it was red and it had a red garage door and I started crying. I burst into tears like, Daddy, this, I was born a Christian. I'm going to die a Christian. I can't believe you're doing this. I'm going, but just to check it out to see how, how deep in trouble my family really is. Um, but when we went to the inside the home uh it was it was something i've never experienced before in my life of just com warmth and generosity and um patience because people treated me like i was their family um and i never experienced that before even even in the church community even in the church community, because it, there is so much backbiting going on that, um, and gossip and jealousy, it created jealousy and resentment. And so people didn't treat you so much like family. You were just a peer and you were competition. Mm -hmm. And so, um, this was different. Like it, and I think the other interesting thing was there was a lot of, um, shame for being Hispanic mm. because I think socially um, in Texas, you know, immigration was, is always a heated debate and the Mexican community being so, you know, they're becoming predominant. There's so many of them and they don't speak English and it's frustrating. And so I remember growing up saying, you know, I was born in Mexico, but I'm really from Spain because it was <laughs> Europe, you know, Spain's better. Um, and there's all these, like, we grew up with this, knowing that there is this racism and prejudice against the Mexican community. Um, and so we grew up hearing things like, oh, you don't look that Mexican, that's good, you know. Um, and even within the, the Baptist church, there was that same kind of feeling. Um, even though we were a Mexican Baptist church, the lighter-skinned Mexicans that were mm. better. It was. It's interesting, like all these social things that were kind of showing their face, and make you know we started to see how this isn't healthy and it's making things fall apart. And in this, when we came into the Baha'i home, people were. I didn't feel ashamed to be Mexican. I think that was what was more powerful to me. Now, is it like? Was it like unconscious to you? Uh, I mean, did when you came to this home and you saw something you hadn't seen before, then you then did you realize that what was going back there was, or were you sort of seeing it all along and you didn't like it, but you it was just uh, you got to put up with that part of things. It was more that I, okay. I was seeing it all along. I didn't see it as strongly until I saw the contrast of it. I knew something wasn't right and something wasn't feeling well, but I didn't know what it was. And, um, and you were going to change it. And I was going to change it. Yeah. When I became a minister, I was going to change it. Um, and I experienced real prayer when I went to this, high meeting because when I would hear the prayers being read or especially the prayers that were memorized um, being said in such a reverent, slow and loving manner it was so different from my other experience where prayer was really mumbled and fast and um almost it was about material things 
you know. Uh, and here, the prayer was just so different, and it was so poetic, so beautiful, and it really touched me. And and that I felt spiritual without having done something to seem spiritual. Like an example is my sisters and I during um, during the during mass would try to pin we would pinch each other to cry during the you know the uh, group prayer because if you cry then you repent and you're allowing Jesus in your heart and then you go up to the front of the stage and then the pastor puts his hand on your forehead and he prays for you and your sins and if you're not crying you're prideful and so we felt that we weren't spiritual unless we did certain things and one of them was crying one of them was putting our hands in the air and looking like we were in pain or something you know all of these silly things that we thought that is what spirituality is and then here at this meeting spirituality was just a lot more simpler you know and it felt more honest i felt like i didn't have to pinch myself to cry to feel spiritual all I was doing was sitting and listening to people say these prayers, and I felt spiritual. And I felt, I felt like my presence being there was adding to a dynamic. Mm. And the host really made that clear. Like, I'm so happy you're over. You're visiting our home. Your spirit adds a dynamic to the group. And, you know, it, to me, it was just like, wow, I've never heard this before. And I was still a little suspicious. I was like, okay, when is this fire going to start? <laughs> when are people going to start to dance around a, a fire and boiling water or whatever? Uh, but it never happened. And, um, and then afterwards, I was like, okay, that wasn't that bad, Dad. All right. Um, and then um, two weeks went by and we didn't go to the fireside anymore. I think because of schedule problems. And after two weeks went by, I asked my dad, Dad, what about those Baha'is? <laughs> and then we started going as a family. And I noticed that we were never separated at all. Every family was in this living room. Every child, every adult. The kids weren't taken away to a separate a separate bedroom. Um, everyone was there and we were singing together. We were talking about spiritual matters together and there wasn't someone telling us how to think. And um, I, I saw that everyone there was like a spiritual leader and I really liked that. I mm. thought, wow, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't believe in Baha'u'llah until I think two years later. I just really liked the community, and we became really active with the uh, Baha'i Youth Workshop, and we would do a lot of service projects without trying to save people on the side. <laughs> and um, we developed really close friendships with the two two girls from from Pflugerville, two Baha'i girls, and um, it just. And then I started developing relationships with the adults, which never happened at my Baptist church. It's always the kids mm -hmm. and then the adults. But here I noticed that we were all friends. And what I really was just taken aback was when we would have group consultation, um, my voice was heard. And I would make suggestions. And the next day or the next week, I would see an adult execute that suggestion and to me that was like oh my god I, I never experienced this before in my life and um because I wasn't 15 yet and my parents my parents declared I think really soon after um the entire family went to the fireside um let's just clarify declaring is when uh, a person publicly says that they accept Baha'u'llah as the manifestation of God for this day right and uh and all it involves is signing a card for administrative reasons to uh, receive material and, and put their name down as Baha'i. Yeah, so yeah. They, they had, there was a party for the, um, mm -hmm. 
and you know they re- they formally welcomed us into their community, even though we were already welcomed from the beginning. And so we started going to um, 19-Day Feast, which is a gathering that the Baha'is um, come together every 19 days to um, to pray. There's a prayer portion, and there's also an administrative portion. And um, I I was still, I, you know, I was, because we were young, we weren't 15, and the age of 15 is when you um, declare. Um, so we were becoming to the... These, the, the feast and during the consultation portion where people, community members, make suggestions or give observations and we consult as a community as how to grow, um, I would make suggestions. And at first, because I, I think the, the, the youth were really shy and they wouldn't necessarily bring up anything for Baha'i consultation, but I didn't grow up with that shyness, so I would, I would make suggestions and I was taken seriously and I really felt empowered you know I it was it was amazing for me to to feel that kind of respect and um and it just made me more like oh I really loved this this community a lot and then I started asking more questions about Baha'u'llah and the Bob and but for a while I have to admit it was difficult for me to to kind of let go of these ideas that were drilled into my head that Jesus is the only way. I remember this quote that we would always recite in the beginning of Sunday school is, I am the way and the truth and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, and we would say this verse so that it would protect us from the other religions. <laughs> And, uh, and so it's like, I know this verse and I know, and, and so I had a hard time in the beginning understanding progressive revelation and how God has this eternal covenant with humanity that he would always bring these manifestations of himself to give us new teachings or new insights into our spiritual reality. And, um... Thus the major religions of the world. The major, yes, the major religions of the world. And I liked that. I thought that was really powerful because it accepted all of the, the truth of every major religion and their, their holy books. And, um, but to know that Jesus Christ wasn't the only one, you know, <laughs> he was really special to me because I felt I had a relationship. I felt that we were tight. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> But I realized that by accepting Baha'u'llah, I was, I was being obedient to Jesus Christ because he said he would return. And, and in a way, it was me acknowledging, it was, it was me acknowledging his, his return. And so it's, I slowly started to really understand those concepts. I think I was really young to really um, understand fully, but as I was growing and my sisters and, um, and I were, were kind of developing spiritually and intellectually, you know, we started to understand some of these concepts better and it just made so much sense that we couldn't say no. Um, Mm. and, and then, um, so that was a couple of years then, um, that process. Yeah. I, um, you know, my sister declared when she was, I have a twin sister, and she declared when she was 15. I didn't declare until I was 16. Um, because I felt like I really wanted to discover this on my own. And um, and I think I was just stubborn to begin with anyway. I'm really, I have a stubborn personality. Um, and, and, uh, and I realized it was my pride that was hurting me. It wasn't the Baha'i community. It's like, they're there. They're always shining. But I just turned my back out of, being stubborn and prideful mm. so and so then i finally yeah. declared <laughs> so at that point you were 16 yeah 16 and then uh what happened after that um and then oh my god okay a lot of things happened it's not a romantic happy story of a family becoming a baha'i because i have to say that it was right after we became baha'is it was the most the two years after were the most um, 
uh, difficult years filled with hardship and um, turbulence in my parents' marriage and in my relationship with my parents because suddenly there's a quality of men and women. There's consultation within a family and we had no clue how to do any of these things. And we, you know, my sisters and I were growing up learning these ideas of equality, of consultation, of, you know, being spiritually responsible for, or being responsible for your own spiritual growth and development. And we were having, we were learning all these new ideas of family dynamics. And then we started seeing our parents. And then we were just like, well, we don't have equality in this household. And so we were putting this pressure on our parents. But my parents also felt that pressure that they're now they now know these, these concepts. Where do we, where do they even begin to implement them? They never grew up with these ideas. And how do you shed these cultural, traditional roles of femininity and masculinity of husband and wife? Um, in Mexico, or in Spanish, the word wife is the same as handcuffs esposa esposas so you know from you know culturally it's it's not it it doesn't have a really good uh i guess spirit behind husband and wife it, and um the wife is supposed to be submissive to the the man and the man is the king of the household and suddenly this is no longer true and my dad's entire definition just became shaky mm. what makes me a man and then my mom what makes me a woman what makes me a wife and then my father what makes me a husband and and it it was really difficult because it just brings up so much cultural baggage that you have to kind of throw out and the throwing out and shedding process is I think really painful and so I saw my parents go through a really difficult time where they were even thinking of divorce mm -hmm. you know um and I was so upset I was like we just became Baha'is what's going on why are all these things happening to my family why are we why do we seem so why does it seem so chaotic and why isn't it peaceful and you know like I had romantically envisioned it you know and a Baha'i told me that it's my parents shedding their old world um, veils. And in order to build a new house, you have to kind of knock the old house and it's a painful process. And it made me appreciate what they were going through. And it, mm. it made my sisters and I be really supportive um, to my parents because it's like my father had to learn to step down. And my mom had to learn to step up. And both of those things were difficult. Um, but we had the Baha'i community there supporting us. So at one point, my parents asked for help to the local spiritual assembly. And um, one of the assembly members would come and visit us every week to practice consultation. And we learned that consultation wasn't, you know my father giving his opinion and all of us agreeing <laughs> we realized that it's that's not consultation and we were thinking this whole entire time that that's what it was but then this this person who also has a family realized they didn't know what consultation was either and having this opportunity to to help another family practice consultation made her go back to her family and practice it and then at one point our families came together to practice consultation um and so we got into this habit of having family meetings and consult, um, which really, I have to say, was what saved my parents' marriage. Mm -hmm. And it saved us. It saved our family. from um, Because it's easy to say, to throw in the towel and say, this is too chaotic. I'm just going to divorce you and leave. But they really stuck it out because unity was more important to them. Uh, mm -hmm. And they had that support from the Baha'i community of saying, we're all going through the same thing. 
none of us know what equality looks like, and none of us know what family consultation looks like. We're just trying the best we can to discover that with each other. And so it was just empowering that we were going through this chaotic time. And we're still going through it. We're still mm-hmm. shedding those old sure. world patterns. And I am too. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize that it was my parents' generation to go through that shedding process. And it's my generation to continue with it, but also to rebuild with what I've grown up learning. It's interesting because you said this process started when you were 10. And then you became a Baha'i when you were 16. And during that time pretty much this issue of, of realizing what equality was in consultation had not yet manifested itself in your family. Mm-hmm. But it was after you uh, publicly declared that you were a Baha'i, then all of a sudden this aspect of who we are and how we have to be uh, manifested itself. What do you think was the, the trigger I think the trigger was um, this educational system that was introduced to us at the time when I declared, which um, is called the Ruhi Institute. And um, it's a series of courses that kind of help you develop skills um, for becoming a spiritually empowered individual within a community. So... Um, The first book in the sequence is Reflections on the Life of the Spirit, which really talks about our spiritual reality, um, our purpose in life. We talk about prayer, and we talk about, we develop skills of how to read holy text and then apply it to your life. What are the implications of these spiritual truths? You know, how, how does your life, how would your life look differently if you applied, you know, truthfulness? if you applied equality of men and women. So we were learning to think about those things. And that's when we started seeing the difference of reading something, a nice principle and saying, that's nice. And then going home and doing our thing. But then, and then the difference, uh, you know, by contrast, reading a principle and then reflecting on it with your life an experience in mind of, you know, how would this look differently? How would my actions be different if I applied this principle in my life? And we did that as a family. And so during when we would come together and go through this training, that's when we would notice (laughs) we're not really practicing these things. And if we were, our lives would look differently in this manner. And um, it was like... (laughs) It was a hard, rough process because it's like you're looking at yourself in the mirror and you're looking at the pretties and the uglies. And then you're learning to love your my, my sisters for who they are and they're learning to love me for who we are, but then challenging each other to, to change. And I, I think that takes a lot of bravery. <laughs> to, and and um, to be able to say, okay, yes, I will change that, you know. Mm. Um and swallowing your pride and your ego. Um, so I think that's what, what really did it. Mm. Because this is the first time that we're learning to to be spiritually, res- to be responsible for our spiritual development. Because it's just so comfortable to have someone else tell you what to think. And for some spiritual leader to to lead your life spiritually. And then suddenly you're asked to do it on your own. You're responsible for your spirituality. And then it has an effect on the community and an effect on the society and an effect on the world. It's just, you could get lost in that. And it's a, it's a heavy duty responsibility. So we realized that the entire community was learning how to, how to function without clergy. And... That to me is a really beautiful struggle to be going through together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the rocky period, um, 
you know, the really rocky period lasted about two years. And then there was a year where my parents decided to go through a year of patience. And let's explain that's uh, in the Baha'i concept, a year of patience or a year of waiting is before a couple or a married couple decides to actually finalize a divorce. There's a year of waiting in which they separate, but the intent is to try to work out any problems that are in the marriage during that time period. And then after the end of the year, there's the final decision of whether to reconstitute the marriage or to go ahead and get a divorce. So they decided to go through this process, and um, it worked out nicely because my dad was transferred to um, a company in Connecticut. And my mom and the four of us children stayed in Texas. And they didn't want to divorce. They decided that from the beginning. But they were really using the year of patience as a tool to kind of grow as individual spiritual beings so that they can bring a new dynamic into their marriage because they felt that both of them just were struggling so much together that, you know, some, sometimes it just it was difficult for them to go back and reflect on what they both needed to do when they were together. So they needed that time apart to um, develop spiritually um, and become stronger so that they could make those sacrifices, sacrifice the old for the new to come in. Um, so that was the purpose of their separation um, which to me was just a real, um, I, I learned a lot from my parents, you know, in terms of relationships and, um, the purpose of relationship is to grow closer to God and, uh, and so they were doing that and it took them like superhuman effort to not divorce because <laughs> it's just so easy to give up, mm-hmm. um, and so, um, so finally, after a year, we moved to Connecticut, and then I finished high school in Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, in Texas, we had a very large Baha'i community to nurture us, to support us. And we did not have to initiate anything because there was already a lot of programs put in place. Because it's a huge community, and suddenly we find ourselves in Connecticut and it's a smaller community and we there wasn't anything already planned and set out you know we actually had to be the initiators so (laughs) that was another challenge and like you know crisis and victory is like the the theme I think of um a Baha'i life you're always going through a crisis which leads to victory and then don't get too comfortable because you'll have another crisis in your hands And so here was another one, you know, our family felt closer together because we had overcome a lot of obstacles and we, we felt, okay, now we went through that hard period. We're ready to go through more. Um, and I think it, it increased my respect for my parents and it increased my respect for the family and the need to really work hard together to to be a unified family and then you know encourage that within a community Mm. so we became really close and i think moving to connecticut and we had to depend on each other so we became best friends and i think out of that hardship we were able to become friends we didn't give in to mediocrity and we didn't give in to to apathy of just not caring whatever I'm going to live my own life once I turn 18 I'm out of here that didn't happen because we we suffered so much together Mm. that I think it just really made those bonds stronger Mm. and so we moved as a family unit to Connecticut and um, we started initiating um, you know uh, study circles which is these these weekly meetings to go through the sequence of courses that we went through the Ruhi Institute process, and um, and then we didn't know what this process was about in the beginning. We just knew it worked for us, and 
We wanted to share it with other families. Um, and it kind of, it became like the Baha'i faith became a way of living as opposed to something you go to and then go back to your regular life. Um, and I, and throughout high school, you know, I was going to school, but then I would be traveling to facilitate one of these courses in some community. Um, and I, I just felt empowered and I felt like I was really, I was good at this. So I kept at it and, um, my twin sister was really good at facilitating, you know, diversity within the high school. Mm. And so we both kind of grew, you know, in different ways. Um, and then she ended up graduating and going to Tufts University and I ended up graduating and doing a year of service, which is something that Baha'i youth are encouraged to do, um, after high school or after college to, um, take a year of your life and dedicate it to service. And I ended up dedicating, um, a year to the Northeastern states, um, and to start up these study circles, um, so that communities can, can study and, and develop these skills of how to, how to function without clarity or how to, mm. um, how to really maintain that independent investigation of truth. Um, and cause even long time Baha'is like we're, this faith is so new and there's so much more to learn. And I don't even pretend to know how to function without clergy or that I'm all set in my Baha'i development because it's this constant process. And you realize once you've, you know, you think you've met your goal and you realize how far off you have to go. <laughs> um, so it's always a humbling experience. <laughs> I think being a Baha'i, um, and so uh, it just took me on this whirlwind of of realizing that um, you know the it's not my life is not about just the Baha'i faith as an isolated religious community. It's about it's about opening your eyes to the greater context of humanity. And how in history, even, you know, how, um, how humanity as a whole is growing and it needs, how we need to, to make these systems better, you know, um, I don't know if I'm being clear, but like, mm -hmm. it made me realize that. Being in a religion or being a Baha'i isn't, a, you know, blindly following religious beliefs and a religion and then it's about yourself and your ticket into heaven. It's about working hard to serve humanity, whether or not they're Baha'i. It doesn't matter. It's about really seeing the world is one human body and, um, and growing together. And so I see that my Baha'i work has implications on the betterment of humanity. There's this quote that we learned that starts off the entire, um, sequence, sequence of, courses. of courses. And it's the betterment of the world can be accomplished through pure and goodly deeds, through commendable and seemly conduct. And, um, you know, that's a nice quote. The betterment of the world is accomplished through pure and goodly deeds, through commendable and seemly conduct. But what are those pure and goodly deeds? What is a commendable and seemly conduct? And who's supposed to be doing these things? And if there's so few of us that are developing these commendable and seemly conduct, and then we're doing these pure and goodly deeds, why are we seeing the betterment of the world? Yeah. I had these questions. Sure. And then I realized um, while going through um, 
thing is, is that knowledge is one. <laughs> and you grow up in school knowing, understanding that knowledge is fragmented and it's fragmented into these disciplines, math, science, and um, literature and history. And they're almost in competition with each other, you know, but, and it's, and you learn these things in an ahistorical manner, like history is continuous and, um, but it's, you don't learn from the past. History is just always repeating itself. And, um, but in the Baha'i faith, it's, we're not ahistorical. We look at history and we learn from it to develop further. And um, one thing that just one of the things that really inspired me was the civil rights movement. Mm. And, you know, when you look back at those leaders of the spirit, civil rights movement, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, um, they knew something deeper than we're black and we're angry and this is unfair to us that we're oppressed people. That wasn't what motivated them to lead a life of persecution, <laughs> to stand up for, for blacks having their rights. That wasn't it. They had a deeper understanding of the oneness of humanity, but it didn't just come out of thin air they went through like an institute process of learning um, called Highlander, where this individual um, developed a curriculum based on his understanding that in order for humanity to grow and continue, in order for humanity to succeed, you can't have an oppressed group of people. Mm. And it's not about race. And so he created the first integrated school system and the curriculum was developed as a result. So the curriculum didn't marginalize or ignore a people. It embraced, um, it embraced humanity. Mm. And so Rosa Parks went there. Martin Luther King went there. And, um, you know, the, the, the event that Rosa Parks went and sat in the front of the bus and then you know, was defiant when was when she was asked by a white man to go sit in the back. That was something that she just didn't do one day randomly. That event actually was had been planned for two years mm. by a group of of black community members who were frustrated and they were angry and they they wanted to be defiant. But their source of defiance was anger and hate. And they knew that whoever was going to sit at the front of the bus and not move was probably going to lead a life of persecution. Um, but hate wasn't, I mean, it took them two years to decide when, how, who was going to do it. And they didn't even decide it um, because they were, that, that wasn't the motivating thing that was going to move them into action. Um, and when, so two years passed, they were still trying to consult about this. Um, and Rosa Parks went to Highlander and she, uh, understood for the first time the oneness of humanity. And for the first time she saw an integrated community and she saw that this was a cause. It was a need this, that in order for humanity to progress, there has to be justice and there has to be this love for humanity. And so it was her love for humanity and the oneness of humanity that when she, that she did what she did, that she sat at the front of the bus and was defiant because when she came back to her community and saw the segregation, it was too painful not to do that simple mm -hmm. act of service. That was the pure and goodly deed that brought about the betterment of the world. Mm. That was the commendable and seemly conduct. It was bravery. It was this love for an understanding of the oneness of humanity that motivated her and gave her the courage and the power to do that. Mm. It wasn't this hatred or frustration. That wasn't enough because they were talking about it two years ago. Mm. 
And I feel like the Baha'i faith is the same way. You know, you learn these principles, these truths, and then you see humanity suffering and it becomes like your love for humanity just makes you want to serve humanity mm. and bring it up to newer heights. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Martha Martinez, a Baha'i living in South Hadley and a student at Springfield Technical Community College. If you want specific information on the Baha'i faith itself, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. You are listening to WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.